Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Father, in this place, we invite you to do what only you can do, and that is to teach us. You gave us the promise of your Holy Spirit uh, that you said would be our teacher, our instructor, that you, uh, through your Spirit, would remind us of all the things, God, that you've taught us. And Lord, we need your wisdom as we look at these verses in Hebrews chapter 4. And so, Father, we ask you to just come alongside each of us uniquely at the point of our need this morning, and would you illuminate your word to us in Jesus' name, amen. As, as we started into the, the series in Hebrews, Pastor Scott said this is a tough book, which is why a lot of people avoid it. Um, this is a tough passage, which is why Pastor Scott avoided it. And, <clears throat> and he asked me to do Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 1. No, I'm totally, I'm totally kidding, by the way. I was actually doing Hebrews 3 till he spent longer in 2, and that pushed all that back. And so we, we just interact with this. But I have the privilege of pressing into Hebrews 4. Um, I will say that if I'm walking with a little bit of a gimp, this morning, more than my usual torn Achilles thing from a couple of years ago, it's because I've been wrestling with Jesus over this passage, and my hip hurts. So, um, some of you get that. So, uh, um, sounds like a great Bible story. Um, this is a difficult passage. Um, because the, there's not a lot of clarity in some things w- when you press in and commentators have different perspectives on what this means and what it doesn't mean. And, and, um, but, but I want to unpack it as honestly as I've discovered some things. But here's what we will always do, and that is simply encourage you to go back and press into God's Word and see what He's going to teach you. Um, and so anyway, we're, we're going we're gonna to take a look at this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, it, it begins, now I'm not a great English person, you can ask any teacher I've ever had, but I do know what a conjunction is. And so chapter 4 verse 1 begins with this conjunction, it's like therefore, uh, which indicates that he is continuing to explore a logical conclusion to the argument um, that, that has been developing over the last couple of chapters. Um, you know, how do we… Um, stay on track with Jesus. Chapter 2, we were introduced to, you know, don't drift. Don't neglect such a great salvation and begin to drift. And and don't drift through deception that we see in chapter 3. And and so, he's using the nation of Israel and their failure to help these Hebrews, these Jews that have come to know Jesus, um, press in deeper to Jesus Christ, uh, to, to hold on fast to His promises and to find this rest that He began to talk about in chapter 3. Um, so we, we need to understand the context that these Jewish believers would have understood, because when the, when the readers of this letter who were Hebrews, they were, they were Jews who'd placed their trust in Jesus, they would have understood this from a very different context than you and I because this is their history. And, and so he's using their, their history, the nation of Israel. He's already talked about Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than, than, than the nation of Israel. And, and he's using this idea of the fact that they had come so close to entering the promised land, but they didn't. And, and so when you, when you look at this, this passage, uh, a lot of us are going to look at it and, and we think about 
Canaan being our, our eternal glory and our eternal home. And, and a lot of commentators say, yeah, this, this rest that, that the Hebrews uh, writer is talking about is our eternal home and our eternal rest. And I see some of that, but I don't think that's completely everything that, that he's pressing into right here. Because the context and the argument really has to do with drifting, right? You're, you're a child of God. Don't neglect this great salvation, he said in chapter 2. And, and so he's warning us of drifting from the Word because of neglect or deception. And here he begins to press into a little bit more the end of 3 and into 4, uh, the danger of doubting or disbelieving the Word because of hardness of heart because of things that have taken place. We saw earlier the struggles, the trials, all those things that kind of begin to harden our heart and go, oh, God must not really love me. And so there's this separation in relationship. It's not loss of salvation, it's separation of relation. And, and so it's, it's kind of an interesting passage. Some scholars kind of believe there's a threefold aspect to this rest, that God finished the work of salvation, which we saw in chapter one, because he said God did all this and then he sat down. Right? If you remember Pastor Scott's message, he sat down, his work was complete, so he sat down. But then there's a present salvation where we're saved, we're growing in Christ, but then there's this future salvation that, that we enter into a glorified state as we enter into heaven. And so some will say, well, this rest is threefold. It's past, it's present, it's future. And my answer to you very clearly is, I'm not really sure. Amen, let's go home. Look at the text. Um, but as we look at it and unpack it, I want to share some things that I've discovered, and, and I really trust and pray that, that God is going to teach us this morning, and again, as I prayed, as only He can do. So it's important that we understand the background of this section, which is the exodus of the nation of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt, right? We remember the story going back to the book of Exodus. That's the whole book of Exodus. The people of Israel, they're in, in bondage, they're in slavery in Egypt, and God says, I'm going to, I promise that I'm going to take you out of there and I'm going to deliver you to the land of Canaan, this land of promise, this land flowing with milk and honey. And so God did deliver them, right? And how did he deliver them? He delivered them through the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice lamb. You take the blood of the lamb, you put it over your doorpost. And, and so he delivered the nation of Israel. And he, he, as they left Egypt, they had to pass through the wilderness and God's plan was what? Was God's plan to let them wander around for 40 years? No, he wanted to deliver them directly into this land of promise. But what happened? They, they left Egypt and they began to complain. Now, let's let, let be honest. Hindsight, some of us would go, well, I would never do that because God's promises are awesome. I would have probably been the first to go, come on, when's our next stop? Right? I need a big gulp. I need, uh, you know, something. Um, and so they left Egypt and they began to complain and wander. And it's like, wow, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out to the wilderness to die? And so there began this 40 years of wandering, this journey. Now listen, God wanted to take them to Canaan. Canaan was not glory. It was not heaven. So that's part of why I look at this text and go, God wasn't taking them to heaven. He was taking them to Canaan. It was a place of rest. It was a place of protection under the hand and the authority of God to live in close fellowship with Him. That's why part of me is going, yes, I understand from the text there's this eternal rest that, that I have the promise one day when I pass in this life, I will spend an eternity with God. And this eternal
eternal rest in his presence. But right now, he also invites me into intimate relationship where I find rest with him. And I have the choice in my Christian life to wander or to rest. God wanted to deliver them. God wants to deliver me into a place of rest and and intimate fellowship with him where I, I find my needs being met in him, emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally, but I also have a choice in my sin to not enjoy that rest. Do you do you see the picture? So that's why a lot of guys wrestle with this text. It is a difficult, difficult passage. And so I want to just press into it because when when we look at the nation of Israel, we have certain pictures that are appropriate for us as a New Testament church. Uh, The bondage in Israel, uh, that that as Israel was in Egypt and they're in slavery, was sort of a picture of our bondage of sin, right? We're born dead in our trespasses and sin, and we need to be delivered through the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. And so uh, He is the Lamb of God whose death takes away the sin of the world. And it was not his will that they just remain in Egypt or to remain in the wilderness. He wanted to deliver them somewhere, but the people were content to simply be out of Egypt, but not in Canaan. How many of you have come to the place you've discovered, oh, I'm content not being a sinner and knowing that I have an eternity in heaven, but I really don't want to walk in deep intimacy with Jesus now. That's kind of what he's saying. It's like, look, God called you to something greater, and it's not enough just to be out of Egypt. We got to get into Canaan. We're going to find the joy of the Lord, not in our wilderness wanderings as children of God, but when we find the joy and the provision that God has in store for us as His children now. And so when we hear the truth of God's Word, which is what He's talking about here in this passage, whether it's His Word from the Holy Spirit of God that prompts our heart, whether it's the Word of God that you read and study, whether it's the Word of God proclaimed, whether it's the Word of God and some great truths through song, we have to take heed to that Word. And we can either harden our heart to that truth, or we can soften our heart and embrace that truth. So Hebrews chapter 4, if you have your Bibles… I trust that you do. Let's just look together uh, because I, I love the fact that God in His infinite love and His grace and His mercy, He never ever gives us warnings without giving us instruction. So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we have this conjunction, therefore, while the promise of entering His rest. Now, as, as we read through this, I want you to, to kind of pick up some some long-range language and some current language, some, some present tense language. That's why I wrestle with, is this a future tense salvation, glorification, or is it a present tense, my walk with Jesus? Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, and he quotes Psalm 95, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, completed work from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, again quoting, so he's he's drilling into Genesis 2, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 21, right? This, This seventh day, this rest process. And then he quotes again from Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. 
Since therefore it seems for some, uh, remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, present tense, saying though uh, through David so long afterward in the words already quoted Psalm 95, 7 and 8, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When we read through that, I don't know if you caught it, but one Bible study technique that we drill into a lot in small group life is, is look for words that are repeated and emphasized. You may have noticed in those verses, the word rest or rested was used nine times. Um, interesting though, when you, when you double back, because I, I was just kind of looking through some of this in, in the Greek, there's actually three different words that are used for rest. So it's not quite the same word. That's why, at least for me, when I press into this, I see twofold. One, I believe this letter is written to those who've placed their faith and trust in Jesus. So there's one aspect of security that I see right there. But he's also giving them a warning about drifting and staying close in your relationship with Christ. So I also see this sense of assurance and, and confidence that we walk in tight relationship with God. So that's why I, I see that he's speaking to them from the standpoint that, yes, there is this eternal rest that we have in front of us, this security, this confidence that one day when I pass from this life, I will spend eternity in the presence of Almighty God. But right now, I have a choice to spend my life in the presence, walking intimately with God. And it's a choice to harden my heart or soften my heart, to walk in obedience or not to walk in obedience. My choice to wander or my choice to stay close to Christ and walk in obedience and surrender to Him. So it's from that perspective, not the eternal rest perspective, but from the perspective that there is a present reality available for, for believers is where I want to spend our, our time this morning. And so if I were to say, what is this rest this rest is simply a present reality that's available for believers, a, a condition of spiritual assurance and confidence that affects our inner peace, joy, and hope. You see, we have a choice to walk in confidence and assurance in our relationship with Jesus. If there's one question I've dealt with uh, through my years of ministry with people probably more than anything else, it's the question of assurance of salvation. Pastor Dave, how do I know that I'm really saved because I don't feel like it? Anybody ever had, I mean, seriously, anybody ever just struggle with that? And my, my response is simply this, what do your feelings have to do with anything? You see, when I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I did so based on the promise of who God is, not me. And I place my trust in him, and he is a promise-keeping God, which we're going to get to in just a moment, and, and he will do exactly what he said he would do. So when I invited him into my life, guess what he did? He came into my life. 
because he's faithful and true. And so how do we begin to understand, you know, where do my feelings fit? Because we are physical beings. God created us with feelings and emotions. And guys, if you've ever spent time with a woman, you understand that we are different with feelings and emotions. And feelings have a place in our life, but I've discovered just a really simple principle that the fact is God and God's Word. Faith is my trust in God and God's Word. My feelings are a result of my trust in God and God's Word. So when my feelings don't line up with truth, guess what I, guess what I have to do? I have to go back to truth. And I have to put my faith in the truth of what God says. My feelings then become a result of my trust in God and God's Word. And I think that's part of what the, the writer of Hebrews is pressing into right? There are times, there are moments that we're not walking in intimate fellowship with Christ, and he's saying, I want to pull you back into this place of confidence, this assurance, this hope where you're walking in obedience, you're walking in peace, you're walking in joy, you're experiencing the promises of God until the day comes that you experience this full promise of God. So this present reality Right? To me, it's kind of like you're half-hearted or you're whole-hearted. You're either all in or you're not in. You're, you're either associated or you're affiliated. You're either on the bench or in the bleachers or you're on the field in the uniform participating in the game. I don't know where you are this morning. You may be here just exploring things and going, man, I'm not really sure what all this is about. And, and you're sort of affiliated with God, but you're not deeply associated with Him or, or deeply connected or, or affiliated. And so it's a, it's a tough process. Living the Christian life is a tough process. Has anyone else discovered that? Living the Christian life is hard. There's, not, there's nothing easy about this. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. Oh, man. Hey. See, this is more, this, this rest. Now, I want, to, I want to be really clear moving forward. This rest that, that I'm talking about this morning is more than simply feeling good about Jesus. Uh, this has everything to do with the confidence of your salvation and effectiveness in ministry in this life for Jesus Christ. It's the difference between just participating or deeply getting involved. It's, it's a difference of just knowing that Jesus is leading us somewhere or walking close with him and, and knowing the plan. It's that assurance. There's an assurance. There's a confidence. There's a hope. Yes, there's this eternal rest, but there is a place of rest where I am walking confidently with Christ. And it involves a few things that I see in the text. I just want to share them with you. We're not going to have time to press into all of them too deeply, but I really encourage you to go back into this text this week. The first involves a promise from God. This rest involves a promise from God. Verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear that any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, I don't want to jump past this. This is a promise from God. God is a promise keeper. It's directly in line with his nature and with his character. The consistency of God's character is, is why we can trust this promise, because he always acts according to his righteous nature, and what he does is always consistent with who he is. 
So if he makes a promise and he says this promise is available, I'm telling you the promise is available. And it's there for us. But, but it's dependent on this idea of entering his rest. Therefore, the writer begins with therefore. And he says, therefore, fear. Now, usually when we, do, when we see the word fear in Scripture, it really has to do with it, this reverential awe of God. I am just in awe and reverence of who he is. And although that's true, I also see in this, this tense this idea of urgency, where the writer is simply saying, you have to make sure you get this right. You see, the Israelites left Egypt, but that didn't mean that they were all right with God. Some of you are here today, and it's like you know about God, and you have a reverence for Him, and, and, but he, the writer is saying, look, get this right. Be afraid that you don't have this right. And for someone here this morning, I don't know, but, but I want you to be terribly afraid and I'm not trying to just, this is not like a sales technique. This is honest heaven and earth, uh, eternity and heaven or hell kind of stuff. Be sure that you get this right. Be in fear that you might get this wrong. Be in fear and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you got it right. Let's not miss that. Be in fear. Know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you've come to the place that you've got, God, I am a sinner in the best way and how I give you complete control of my life. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that takes away the sin of the world. God, the best way and how I give you complete control of my life. Forgive me and make me the person you want me to be. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic words. We're talking about life surrender. And the writer is saying, be afraid that you've got it right. If not, get it right. And this morning, I want, to, I want you to get it right. Do you know, seriously, if we were sitting down one-on-one -on -one and I just looked at you and said, do you know for sure, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that you've come to the place you've trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? And you have a confidence that he's taken up residence in you. What would you say? Be sure, be afraid. Do you get it right? That, that's exactly what he's saying as he's writing to these believers. Be afraid. Make sure that you don't miss it. Get it right. But then he tells us, but it's more than knowledge. To make sure that you get it right, he says it's more than knowledge. Look at verse 2. For good news, that's the gospel, came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Any teachers in the room? Have you ever just had that moment of going, class, are you even listening to me? Any parents? How many times do I have to tell you? There's a difference between hearing and listening. It's interesting, the scripture says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, you can have all kinds of knowledge, but not here. And, and so he's saying, look, it, it's more than knowledge. If you've been around Southbridge at all, we talk about Jesus every week. Because we're all about Jesus. Because we, we, we firmly believe that Jesus changes people's lives. Amen? 
Jesus is in the business of changing lives. And, and, and if you're looking at your life going, man, you know, I just don't get it. Or, you know, I would just stop and say, be fearful. Be afraid. Make sure that you get it right because you can have all the knowledge in the world. That's what he's saying. They had the knowledge. It was the same message that, that they heard, but they were not united. Some of the best people I know and most knowledgeable, best taught individuals are some of the crankiest, orneriest, most less like Jesus people I've ever met. I've been in ministry 35 plus years and some of the meanest names I've ever been called are names by quote, God-fearing people in church. I'm serious too. A head full of knowledge with no heart and no life that reflects that. I asked a guy one time at a church that I was pastoring, he was part of our deacon ministry, and I asked him this question. I said, let me ask you a question. If you were to die today and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And he looked me as honest and straight up as he could, and he said, well, because I'm a deacon in a Baptist church. To which I said, not anymore. So now what do you say? It's going to have all the knowledge in the world. The question becomes, where do I stand in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? It's not about knowledge. Listen, uh, some of the most passionate, loving people I know are new believers in Jesus who don't know a lot. And it was a great old preacher once upon a time said, it's a shame when brand new believers in Jesus need to backslide to fall in step with the church. Yeah, that cuts, doesn't it? Let us keep pressing on. Knowledge is important, but what's, what's the purpose? A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite old preachers and, and authors, said it's one thing to know about the Bible, and it's altogether another to have it dramatically transform your life. True, isn't it? So what do I do with this knowledge? How does this knowledge then transform my life? My friend Robbie Gallaty said, we're going to get into the Word until the Word gets into us. See, that's the purpose of diving into God's Word is so that it can take up residence in our life and begin transforming us from the inside out to be more like Jesus. So what's, what's the difference? Well, he goes on and he tells us the difference. The difference is faith. See, this rest that we find in Christ, this, this assurance, this confidence of our eternal rest comes from faith. The second part of verse 2 simply says this, um, because they were not united by what? Faith with those who listened. It's the difference between me passing that math quiz in fourth grade and not. I heard the information, I didn't listen and apply. I'm like, wait, what am I supposed to do with this fraction again? I'm telling you, fourth grade on, my math days were over. Mrs. Potter ruined me forever. You can hear it, but not listen. And he's saying, look, they had the same thing, but they were not united by faith with those who actually listened. They, they took in the information. For we who have believed, present tense, he's talking with them, for we who have believed enter that rest. We enter that rest by faith in the knowledge of God because of the promise of God. The principle of faith, when you read through Scripture, it undergirds everything God does in the lives of His people. Everything. Everything He does in our lives is done by faith in the Son of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ the Son of God. 
And so he uses the words faith and believe, right? The united by faith for we who have believed. And I just have to hit these words really fast because, you know, we understand faith. Faith is, is this trust, it's this confidence. It's not this pie in the eye, gosh, I, I hope, but it's a confidence. And, and the word believe, this is the same Greek word that Jesus used with Nicodemus in John chapter three when he said, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, that word believe is not just an intellectual, oh, I believe. That's the knowledge without surrender. The, the word pistuo literally means to surrender, to give oneself over. And so when you understand that in context with Jesus talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was very religious. He did all the right things. He had all the knowledge, but he was not willing to surrender his life and abandonment to Jesus. And Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, you have to believe. In other words, you have to surrender. All the works, all the things that you're doing are not going to do it for you. You have to die to yourself. That's why he went on and he used the phrase, you must be born again. In other words, you have to die to yourself. You have to begin a brand new life in Jesus. Nicodemus is like, whoa, that's heavy stuff. Jesus is like, you're right. For some of you this morning, you have the knowledge, but, but you, have, you don't have the faith. You haven't believed. You haven't surrendered. And so then that leads us to not just from faith, but then it leads us to obedience. He says you have to be fearful that you're not drifting because of unbelief or because of disobedience. And so verse 6, he says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. As a child of God, I don't know about you, but I've had moments in my life, and, and they still come frequently, regularly, where I choose disobedience over obedience to God. Anybody else? Thank you for not making me feel alone. You see, I was obedient to Jesus when I gave my life to him, and there's been moments that I could go, wow, I, I, I did okay. I, I was obedient. There's moments that God calls me to encounter someone and share his love and grace, and I have to be honest, I'm disobedient in that moment. And in that moment, I feel a sense of separation. I don't feel at rest. I don't feel the sense of confidence and hope because my obedience to Christ brings that sense of assurance and confidence. Now, now please understand what I'm saying. We don't obey for salvation. We obey from salvation. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. I can't do anything to earn salvation. No matter how good I am, I could pick up all the rules and all the laws in the Bible, right? Don't smoke or drink or dance or chew or go with girls that do. I mean, I could do all these things. I could do all these sorts of things, but not have a relationship with God. Why? Because I'm not obeying for my salvation. I, I desire to live in obedience to God's command because He has saved me through His grace. Do you see the difference? I desire to walk in obedience because I realize that my life of obedience is evidence of Christ's gift of salvation to me, and therefore it is a display of God's goodness to a lost and dying world around me. 
Am I willing to give up certain things to walk in obedience to Jesus and see others come to Christ? Yes, absolutely. There are some things in this culture I don't wrestle with because it's like, it's not worth it for me. I would rather live in obedience to God's command so that others see Jesus in me and I can point more people to Jesus than, than to have these things of the world. I want to live for Jesus. I want to walk in obedience to Jesus. Why? Because it also helps me know the joy and the confidence and assurance of what it means to rest my life in Jesus Christ. Jim Elliott, if you don't know the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliott and the missionaries that went down to Ecuador uh, to reach an unreached tribe of cannibals down in Ecuador, it's a phenomenal story. Because as they were reaching these people and starting to make some inroads, they found five of the men dead because this tribe attacked them and killed them. But Jim's son and family stayed and they continued and they began to reach this tribe of people. It's an incredible, incredible story. Just Google Jim Elliott. But one of the things that he said, which I absolutely love, he said, forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know so an so, uh, such an extraordinary God. Forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know so extraordinary a God. Is your life ordinary or is it extraordinary because you're walking in deep passion, assurance, and confidence with the God of this universe? Next, I want you to see that there's a diligence involved. Verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now, I believe if this, if this part right here, we're talking about an eternal rest, we cannot strive for that because we can't earn that. Amen? I, I can't strive. I can't try harder to enter salvation. I can't work my way into heaven, but he's saying, let us strive to enter that rest, this confidence, this assurance that, yes, I have an eternal rest in my future, but right now I desire this rest, and I have to strive for this sense of assurance and this sense of confidence. So he said, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In other words, learn from what you see. Learn from your ancestors, not all of them reached that place. There was a generation that did not get to go into Canaan and enjoy the promises of God. It didn't mean they lost their salvation. They didn't get to enjoy what God had in store for them. Some of you will, will die in this life and go spend an eternity with God because you've trusted Him and His promises secure and you're secure in His hands, but you're going to live a miserable life of existence because you're not enjoying what God promised you. Now, please don't get me wrong. This is not health, wealth, prosperity kind of stuff. This is simply a sense of assurance, a sense of confidence. Amen. To walk with Jesus confidently, to know his peace amidst difficult situations, to know hope in difficult situations of life. When people look at you and go, how do you, how, how do, you do that? I mean, I don't know, but God is good, Right? And so, so we press on, and, and there's a diligence. And again, we are striving for something, not for salvation, but we are striving from salvation. Because we are saved, we are striving for, for this rest, this relationship with God that brings fulfillment and joy. Exactly what Jesus promised, John 10, 10. I have come that they might have life, and they might have it, what? More abundantly. That's not lottery winning. That means a full, meaningful life that has dignity and value. 
Jesus said, that's the life I want for you. And, and here we're saying you got to strive to enter that. The word strive here literally means to make haste or to give diligence. So because I'm not really smart, I looked up the word diligence. And, and it says, this is literally the definition, careful and persistent work or effort. So when I looked at it, I said, okay, I can't work for my salvation. That's a gift. I can't work for my salvation, so what am I working for? I'm working for deep intimacy with God. I am striving for it. Now, Pastor Scott talks a lot about running. I hate running. Thank you, yeah. Listen, I, I run once a day. I get up in the morning and I run to the bathroom. That's about it for me. Usually when I get the urge to run, I lie down and it goes away, and I'm perfectly happy. I don't understand runners. So if you're a runner, God loves you. I, I do too. I don't understand your mind, okay? Um, but one thing I've discovered when I talk to a lot of runners or, or gym rats, any gym rats in the house? Got a few? Josh, me, we work out a lot, really buff, right? What I've discovered is when someone has a goal to, to run a marathon or, or to lift or to, to build their body, they, they want a buddy to go with them, right? Why? Because you, you seek after that accountability. You, you seek after someone to go, come on, man, you can do it, you can do it. This makes sense with, with the verse we just looked at, right, in Hebrews 3, 13, but encourage one another, what? daily so that none of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We all need Jesus, buddies. And if you missed the invitation last week, Pastor Scott challenged us with this question. Who do you have in your life that's pushing you to be more like Jesus? Who is helping you strive for this kind of rest? Who is helping you strive to be diligent, to be careful, to be persistent, to work and, and dig into God's Word so that you can have this fellowship with God? And you go, well, Pastor Dave, what does that even mean? I can give you a great little book by Richard Foster on the celebrate, it's called Celebration of Discipline, dealing with the spiritual disciplines in life. You want to grow? You want to strive to be more like Jesus? Begin to grow into spiritual disciplines. Time in God's Word, meditation in God's Word, prayer, uh, Scripture memory. Ooh, wow, I can't memorize stuff. I promise you, you can because I could go out with you to your car. You could get in the car, turn on the radio, and sing at least five or six of the next songs that come on. You can memorize stuff. You just just choose not to. If you want to grow in God's Word, you begin to study His Word. You begin to grow in His Word, and you have someone that's pushing you to be more like Jesus. Strive. He says you got to be diligent to do it, to strive. And then the last thing I want you to see in this passage is it pushes us to intimacy with God. All this stuff, the promise of God, the faith, the obedience, the diligence pushes us to intimacy with God. Look at verse 12. For the Word of God is what? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Man, this is, this is strong stuff. The, the word that's used here, it's kind of interesting because the, the writer's really pressing into the intimacy Matter of fact, you see it in the next verse because he says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's not a thing in your life going on that God doesn't know about. 
There's no secret sin that you're tucking away. There's no issue that, that, that's bringing you down, that's discouraging, that's destructive, that's deceptive. There's not a thing that God is not aware of in your life. So what does he say? He says the word of God. Now, now understand this too. The readers would have clearly understood, oh, he's talking about me picking up my Bible and reading it because they didn't have a Bible. It wasn't like, oh man, hey, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. I'm going to grab my Bible. And I'm going to have a quiet time. They didn't have that. Now, I love my Bible. Some of you, I can see the glow on your face. You're either on Facebook and Twitter or, you know, um, or, or on your Bible app. I'm not sure. But, <clears throat> but I love my physical Bible. I, I just love having it. I love holding it. I love going to it. There's some verses that I remember or a passage of scripture that I, I can remember. And I can't tell you the address. You know the address, right? Like we're in Hebrews chapter four, verse one. That's, that's the address. There's some things I can't tell you the address, but I can tell you it's, it's, in the, it's in the New Testament. It's in one of the epistles. It's on the right-hand side, left column, somewhere toward the bottom. And, I, and I'll grab my Bible and I'll start fishing for it. I'm like, there it is. Oh, it's, it's like binding for gold. It's like, oh, there it is. Oh, man, I remember that. I love my physical Bible. That's why we've been giving you guys these, these journals. Just, to, man, write in it. Take notes in it. Scribble in it. You know, draw circles around stuff. I, I use colors. I draw circles from stuff to stuff. It's just, it's just fun to dive into it and get to know what's there. Why? Because I'm developing intimacy with God. Uh, but the, the phrases that he used, I love what he says because he says it's living, it's active, it's sharp. This is a sermon series in a verse, and we're not going to go there, I promise you. We're going to wrap up. But these three words I love, he says it's living. In other words, it's alive. It becomes personal. It's very direct. When you pick up the Word of God and you read it, God is very much alive, and he is speaking to you personally. It's the only book that you can pick up and read and have a conversation with the author. You're, you're interacting with the author, and it's living, it's alive. He's teaching you. You can pick up a, a, the Word of God, and you could read a verse that you maybe committed to memory years ago or have studied years ago, and all of a sudden, it's got fresh perspective. Why? Because you're not in the same place in life that you were. And it's speaking to you in the very moment of your life. But he also says it's, it's active. The, the word active that's used here is actually where we get our English word energy. And, and so it's, it's driving us. There's, it's the revealed Word of God. It's effective. It's powerful. If you ever stick a, a fork in a socket, and I'm not saying go home and do that, but if you've ever done that, I have, it, there's, there's an energy there. There's a power there. And, and oh man, all of a sudden you come alive. <clears throat> I had a good friend. He had, it, totally unrelated. I wasn't going to share this. He had kidney stones and he was working on his electrical. He took a hit from a 220, threw him across the room, shattered his kidney stones, and he passed him. He's like, I wouldn't recommend that as therapy for anyone. He goes, but it was amazing. I felt great. So anyway, don't do that. It, it's active. It has energy. It's powerful. It accomplishes exactly what it's set out to do, which is why Isaiah 55 says the Word of God will never return void because it'll do exactly what it was set out to do. But then he says it's sharp, like a double-edged blade. And, and that word is, is really kind of referring to a small sword, more of a hand-to-combat sword, even to the point like a smaller dagger, not a big wielding sword. I firmly believe that if, if Hebrews was written today, 
Because the language that he's using is this is the sharpest thing you've ever, if just imagine the sharpest thing you've ever seen, this is sharper. And I could see him like today, if he were writing this, he would probably use the analogy of a, of a scalpel, fine surgical steel. It's cutting and even says to, to the bone, between the bone, the joints, the marrow, he's getting down to the deepest stuff in our life. You want to know where God wants to meet you? At the deepest stuff in your life. That's where he wants to meet you. So what does he say? He says it does that. It's alive. It's active. It's sharp to do what? To pierce and to discern. As we close this morning, um, I've asked Nikki, as we were talking it through, we want to close a little bit different. I want to give you a moment to just reflect on where you are with Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, just take your stuff, just kind of close it all up. You can set it in your lap, set it on the floor so there's not a distraction. The biggest question I want you to face this morning is that the one that we talked about a bit ago, because he says, therefore, fear. Fear that you might get this decision wrong. This is a decision that is an eternal decision. It's, it's a decision of life and death. And if you're sitting in this room, if you have never come to know Jesus Christ, if you're uncertain in any way, we would love to have a conversation with you in this place before you leave. And when Nikki begins to sing in just a moment, I'm gonna come down here. We're gonna have some other leaders around the room. I invite you in that moment to come and just have, a, have an honest conversation. Say, I just need to know. Maybe you need assurance. Maybe you, you're sitting here this morning, you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We wanna invite you to come to know him. We can't do it for you. We're gonna open God's word and help you understand what it means to have a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And we'll have some leaders around the room just to kind of talk with you. For some of you, maybe you know that you've come to know the Lord, but you're just struggling and you just need a moment to just sit before the Lord and say, God, I invite you to meet me in this moment. Maybe you need to recommit your life to, to the study of God's word. Maybe you need to, to pray and say, God, I need you to bring people into my life that are gonna help me stay sharp. that are gonna push me to be closer to Jesus. I just wanna invite you to spend this moment with the Lord. Nikki's going to sing and then she's going to invite us to stand and we're going to finish together. But during this time while you're seated, please, if you need to come and talk to somebody or you just need to come and pray with someone and say, would you just pray with me for this? We would go absolutely. We'd love to do that. This is a great old hymn. It simply begins by saying, my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Would you just bow your heads in an attitude of prayer and just spend a moment with the Lord. If you need to come right now, I invite you, just stand and come, would you? Wherever you are around the room, just come. You can come forward. You can go to a side. Someone's just going to meet you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. But let God speak to your heart in this moment.